It certainly is a blessing to be here this morning. And it's so good to see each and every person who is assembled and gathered here today. The Pippin Church of Christ, we always welcome our visitors, of course, but we're always thankful for our membership and that things are as well with you and me to permit us to assemble in the way that we so much look forward to doing. I hope that you have your Bible still open. A moment ago, Brother Lester read from Galatians chapter 1. It, that will be one of the passages to which we'll turn our attention this morning, but there will be a few others as well. I'd like to set the stage for the lesson over the next moment or two, a lesson entitled, The Book. These introductory comments are the very ones I had in mind with respect to that. When we assemble for worship, one of the things that you and I do is lift high the banner, of course, of the Word of God. Worship the Lord, the beauty of holiness, First Chronicles 16, 29 tells us. As David echoed those words so long ago, it still jars within you and me to realize just how significant worship really is. The middle of that slide brings us to the point of consideration today. We all know that if God so chooses to permit things to stand two weeks from today, we'll be in a new year. It'll be the first day in January 2017. And yet as 2016 comes to its close, it does offer a time of reflection, a time of assessment, a time to perhaps make some changes. And all of us maybe are in light of wondering, what can I do better next year? More directed to faithfulness and service to God than maybe I have this year. It's certainly fair to say that this book is the core and the fundamental matter of all of it. This book we call the Bible. No person will be strong unless he has a pretty thorough working knowledge of this book. No congregation will be strong unless it's a pretty thoroughly working knowledge of this book that makes it so. And so one of the things we shall do in 2017, if God permits things to proceed that way, we're going to cast a spotlight on Bible knowledge next year. We're going to give some thought in the sermons and lessons about helping us understand better the books of this book, the characteristic messages that they send forth, and that will help all of us, young and old alike, to be stronger in our service, our knowledge of God. But this lesson today is a bit of a foundational one. In that, it brings back to consideration. I keep referring to this book. I keep talking about it, and you do as well. Why is it so special? I'm sure many of us could give answers, but let's let it do its own talking. Let's let the Bible tell us in no uncertain terms about just how special this book is. The word Bible comes, as you can see on that slide, from two rather ancient words. There's an old Latin word, Biblia, and there's an old Greek word, Biblos. Would you notice what they mean? They have reference to the book. Now, throughout the course of human history, literally millions and millions of articles and books and autographs have been written. What's so special about this one? Out of all of those writings, there's something that's called the book, as if it stands more special, higher, more noteworthy. Well, it's because that is so. What is it that makes this book that way? As you study it over the next few moments with me, I suggest five blockbuster New Testament passages. Five significant ones, and we're going to look at all of them. And as we devote a little time to each one, I hope we each will be impressed with this book. 
Let's start with this one. In 2 Peter 1, verses 20 and 21, if you'd like, you might notice the presentation that the inspired apostle made on that occasion. Peter wrote it like this, "...knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation." For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but rather holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Now you may notice something rather fascinating, that in verse 20 reference was made to a very special word. The word was Scripture. You and I may pick up the Herald Citizen and read out of it. We may in fact read out of other articles or magazines, but yet there's something about Scripture. Peter referred to it, knowing this first, no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. As you and I know, Peter lived in a time when already some notable writers had lived, men like Homer, the Iliad had already been written by this time, and a whole host of other writers. And yet there's something about the writings to which Peter referred, he gave it a different name. The word Scripture literally means, it comes from the Greek word graphe, you remember when you took a math class and drew a graph? Graph has its original meaning, that word graphe, the writings. Peter referred to the writings. You'll notice some of these comments. They're sacred writings. They're holy writings. Inspired writings. We already gain a sense that what Peter had in mind were these exceedingly special matters. Let's in fact build a few more thoughts based on the inspired writings that are given, knowing this first. Did you notice with me that one of the assertions that Peter made is that there's something we've got to understand first. This has to be a fundamental plank, a fundamental presentation in light of understanding the Bible. We've got to know this first. No prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. It is not my business, nor yours, nor anyone else's to take this and to take a passage and use it to teach what is inconsistent with the fullness of the Word of God. No Bible writer contradicts any other. No Bible presenter contradicts any other. And you and I do great disservice to the Word of God to take any passage and interpret it in a way that contradicts another passage somewhere else. And we'll have to give an account and judgment for doing that kind of thing. No prophecies of any private interpretation. Not only that, notice what else is asserted. Verse number 21. Peter rather quickly asserts, does he not? The writing came not by the will of man. Now some might argue, but what does that then mean? We know David wrote portions of the Bible, and so too did Moses and Peter and John and the others. So didn't men write it? And of course the answer in the final analysis is no. The man may have held the pen or the writing instrument, but didn't Peter explain it like this? It was the Holy Spirit who threw them, buoyed them, moved them, compelled them to write what they wrote. His express wording again is this, The prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. They were moved by the Holy Ghost. It was the Spirit who in fact superintended the movement, if you please, for them to write what they wrote. 
And so as you and I look at this Word of God, as we handle it, as we make use of it, notice it's Scripture. It is far, far away, higher than anything man has ever written. You'll notice some additional points might then be these. As we strive then to learn from it and rightly divide it, wasn't it true that Paul wrote, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Here was a young preacher, and Paul said, Timothy, make sure you always rightly divide it. Don't ever part it asunder and use it to teach what inconsistency it teaches throughout its message. And today, you and I still live beneath the banner, the umbrella, the presentation of that thought. Surely in light of that, this example then is so very moving. Would you turn with me to Acts chapter 1? In Acts, the opening chapter, this example for what we've just studied comes before us. I would ask you to notice in verse 16 of that chapter, the scene of this particular passage is the following. You and I know that Judas had already taken his life. And the apostles were at this moment in consideration of who would in fact replace Judas. And finally it would be a gentleman named Matthias. But in the concourse of that choice, verse 16 reads like this, Men and brethren, this scripture must needs have been fulfilled, which the Holy Ghost by the mouth of David spake before concerning Judas, which was guide to them that took Jesus. Might I ask you to notice an interesting set of thoughts based on that passage. First of all, the word Scripture is used. The inspired writer, in this case Peter was the spokesman, but he calls to their attention something that was written a thousand years earlier. A thousand years. And yet Peter referred to that as Scripture. It was the graphe, the writings. As he made reference to it, it says, This scripture must needs have been fulfilled. Now you and I notice that that quotation Peter made use of came out of the psalm, Psalm 41. And although David wrote it, notice carefully what the inspired writer here said. It said, The mouth of David spake, but it was the Holy Ghost that did it. One more time, it was the Holy Ghost who through David set that Scripture forth a thousand years earlier. Consider the thoroughness, the greatness of that. The mouth of David is what presented those statements, but notice it was the Holy Spirit that moved him to assert it, and the Holy Spirit that led him to say what he did, even concerning Judas, that was again to live a thousand years in the future. That's breathtaking. That text written so long ago, the Holy Spirit through David's mouth presented it. Doesn't that give you and I a deeper appreciation for just how special it is to look upon the writings of the Word of God? Maybe in light of that, you'll notice several other times, David knew very well what he was asserting. In 2 Samuel 23, 2, The Spirit of the Lord spake by me, he said, and the Word of God was in my tongue. At that point, this first blockbuster passage has taken us to 2 Peter 1, verses 20 and 21. Let's look at another one. It has given us a heightened appreciation so far of the work of the Holy Spirit in presenting this. 
But here's another one. This time, let's turn to the lesson text of Galatians 1. In Galatians 1, verses 11 and 12, this time it's the Apostle Paul that's doing the presentation. Near the opening of this Galatian letter, we find the following statements. But I certify you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached of me is not after man. For I neither received it of man, neither was I taught it, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. You'll notice at the top of that slide is an initial point that's rather vital. The gospel, according to Galatians 3.8, is Scripture. This wonderful New Testament message concerning Jesus Christ and what He accomplished, that is a part of the Scripture. And yet Paul on this occasion said in verses 11 and 12 of chapter 1, this gospel that I've preached, this gospel that i presented, it's certified. Isn't that a fascinating word? You and I go to the grocery store and we encounter certified bread. And we even encounter other matters in our common day that are said to be certified. The water that we drink, it has a seal of certification that it supposedly has passed the various inspections and the contamination, minimal requirements. Paul says on this occasion, I certify you, brethren, the gospel which was preached of me is not after man. Human hands never touched that gospel. Human hands didn't develop it. They didn't set it forth. Human hands didn't contrive it, didn't dream it up. It says in verse number 11, it wasn't after man. As you and I consider that more thoroughly, look at some of these points. That means that the position in which Paul was was very unique compared to you and me today. Our youngsters go to Bible classes and we encourage them to do that. We ask them questions, what did you learn today in Bible class? As we ask them those questions, we get excited to hear them tell us these wonderful stories of truth in the Bible they've learned. Paul, where'd you learn the Bible? Was it Bible class? No. Verse 12 says, I neither received it of man, neither was I taught it. Paul didn't go to school, you see. He didn't go to seminary. He didn't go to a Bible college. He didn't go to a place wherein by educational instructors he was presented the matter of the truth of the gospel. Paul says, I neither received it of man, neither was I taught it, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now that put Paul in a rather unique position because today you and I aren't blessed in that way. We don't get knowledge of the gospel in the same way he did it. You and I study it. We learn it. We spend a lifetime again going to Bible classes and then later adult classes and we learn the truth of the Bible. But Paul says, I didn't receive my knowledge of it that way. On the road to Damascus, we remember that a great light shone about Paul in Acts chapter 9 and he talked with the Lord Jesus Christ and during the course of that conversation bequeathed to him was that beautiful set of teachings and ideas and truths concerning the Word of God. Today, as you and I then are impressed with our need to study it, to learn it, 
We will never be strong for the Lord if we don't know the Word of God. We'll never be those who will be equipped to withstand all the wiles of the devil unless we're equipped and panoplied with the Word of God. Didn't Paul say it like this in Ephesians chapter 6? We are taught that there's an armor that we are to put on. Everything from the helmet of salvation to our feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. And right in the middle, in our hand, is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. You and I carry a sword every day. Oh, in everything we do, we may not be carrying a Bible around, but you and I are knowledgeable of it. And as we carry that sword of the Spirit, may we be quick to use it to cut aside the, the, and asunder the manners of evil, those things that are about us, and live a life that's pleasing unto God. The sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. May I ask you to consider near the bottom of that slide another rather powerful example of this idea. Would you turn with me to Matthew chapter 22? In the heart of this chapter, you'll notice that this rather remarkable statement is made. Jesus had just been asked some questions, and on this occasion, it was the Sadducees who had asked Him a question. It says in verses 29 and following, Jesus answered and said unto them, Ye do err, not knowing the Scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are as the angels of God in heaven. But as touching the resurrection of the dead, have ye not read that which was spoken unto you by God, saying? I suspect that it would be easy for any of us to read past that and maybe miss a very interesting part of it. Let me explain what I mean. I just read it and did not emphasize it at all, but it says, But as touching the resurrection of the dead, verse 31, have ye not read that which was spoken unto you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? I suspect that all of us would quickly remember the scene surrounding the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3, in which God made the definitive statement, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But you'll notice here it says in verse 31, Spoken unto you by God. Although Moses wrote down those first five books of the Old Testament, here Jesus said God spoke them. That was God speaking. Although Moses was privileged to write Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, that part of Exodus, and yea, all of it, is a reminder to you and me that was God speaking. No wonder then this book is so special. It's the Word of God. God declared it and He presented it. In fact, that point will lead us to the next passage, the next blockbuster set of verses, and this is the one I'm sure we all expected rather early on and the time has come. Inasmuch as we have looked at these two already, Galatians 1, 11 and 12, and also 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, why don't we come to 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God might be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. 
it would be entirely fair to say that our usage, our reference to this word Scripture so far has been very, very compelling. Paul here said, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Now, one of the first observations that you and I might be quick to make is, at the time Paul wrote that, only the Old Testament had been completed. We had Genesis through Malachi, those Old Testament Scriptures. So, could you rightly use this verse to refer to the New Testament, since it hadn't been completed at the time that Paul wrote these words to Timothy? Are they also Scripture? You'll notice on the slide before you, there's a little passage you might want to take note of. Maybe even make a note in your Bible if you'd like to do that. In 2 Peter chapter 3, the word Scripture is there and used. And you may notice it's used in a very telling way. In 2 Peter chapter 3, may I invite you to notice verse number 16. Peter in comment says, As also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest, as they do also the other scriptures unto their own destruction. As Peter by inspiration used the word scripture, what did he use it to refer to? Was it the writings of Moses, David? Solomon, the other Old Testament writers? And the answer is no. He was speaking to the writings of Paul and he said, this is also Scripture. And so books like Romans, Corinthians, Galatians, Colossians, Ephesians, and the others, the writings of Paul are also Scripture. And so these New Testament books also are the writings that comprise the book. Back to our passage then, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. That phrase, inspiration of God, is literally theotnoustos. Literally it means God breathed. It came from the breath of God, presented by the very character, directness, and nature of God. May I suggest to you again that is an overwhelming consideration. The libraries of our land and yea, those of the world are filled with books and documents and things that men have written and yet God wrote this one. By the breath of God it was developed and formed and sent to you and me. No wonder then our knowledge of it will be critical. For isn't it still true that faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the Word of God? We'll never have a strong faith unless we have a working knowledge of the book. We'll never be able to withstand the onslaughts of the devil without a working knowledge of the book. Isn't it still a fascinating truth that when Jesus met the opposition of temptation, He said, not once, not twice, but thrice, it is written. And He quoted Scripture to send the devil packing. You and I can do that too, you know. Our knowledge of the Word of God will be critical in our faithfulness. All Scripture given by inspiration of God. Notice what it's profitable for. It's profitable for doctrine. If you want to know what's right or wrong, it's in this book. It's profitable for doctrine. But not only that, for reproof. That word reproof literally means to reproach. It carries with it a message, if you will, of making note of that which is improper. The Bible has that for doctrine, for reproof, for correction. 
you and I are well within our right then to use the Word of God and use it to insist to someone what you've done, your approach to that is not correct. You need to repent. The Word of God permits that because the power is in it, not you or me. Finally, notice it's appropriate for instruction in righteousness. Knowing what's wrong, understanding what's right. The Word of God has all of that within it. Surely in the fascination of that moment, you'll notice how many times that Jesus Himself and the other writers of the New Testament would answer a question with a question. Maybe there are times in our life when we've been told never to do that. Someone asks you a question, don't answer them with another question. May I submit that's not always a bad idea. Jesus did it. When they asked Him in Matthew 19, what about divorce and remarriage? The Lord's first words were, have you not read? He pointed them back to Genesis chapter 2 and said, this was what was set in place at the very beginning and man has never altered it. He cannot alter it. Have you not read? It insists upon you and me then the impressive importance of reading, appreciating, and planting into our heart the things of the Word of God. Blockbuster passage number 3 then has been the closing verses of 2 Timothy 3. And we might make one final observation. Did you notice verse 17? It says, By this Word of God you are made perfect, complete, thoroughly equipped. I like that, don't you? For it lets us know that there's nothing missing. We never have to worry and never have to sojourn through life wondering, is there some critical matter necessary but yet is not here? That's not true, for this book has everything to thoroughly equip you and me to be right with God. For our congregation to be strong and to worship the right way, and for us to do everything that's pleasing unto God. Blockbuster passage number 4. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, we revisit here a passage. It's a little lengthier than the other ones, but I think it will sound very familiar to be sure. But as we listen one more time to these statements from the inspired Apostle Paul, there are a few thoughts that you and I will notice as to what it says about the Word of God. I'll begin reading in verse 9 of 1 Corinthians 2. But as it is written, I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love Him. But God hath revealed them unto us by His Spirit, for the Spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. For what man knoweth the things of a man, save the spirit of man which is in him? Even so, the things of God knoweth no man but the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God, which things also we speak not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual now, pausing at that point, might you notice, Paul has just made a number of statements to this Corinthian congregation who themselves had made a number of errors or mistakes. He admonished them in verses 1 and 2 of this chapter. When I came among you, I determined not to know Jesus, anything but Jesus Christ and Him crucified. 
And not only that, notice carefully in verse 5, their faith was to stand in the power of God. In the heart of all of that, now notice what we've just read in verse 9. There are many who would look upon this and say, verse 9, eye hasn't seen, ear hasn't heard what God has reserved for those of His own. Is that talking about heaven? Many think that it does. I'd submit to you it doesn't. We know that because notice what we just read following it. It's true, heaven is a magnificent place, and none of us would question or doubt that. But notice what the context here is, and what the presentation is. After just saying that eye hasn't seen and ear heard, he says, verse 12, we have received. Whatever is it that Paul's talking about, this is something those Christians in Corinth already had. We've received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is of God, that we might know the things freely given to us of God. What Paul was talking about was the, was the exquisite greatness of the revelation of God. Because in verse 13 he says, which things we speak. These things that eye hasn't seen and ear hasn't heard, it's what we're talking about. It's what we, Paul says, are preaching to you folks in Corinth. And of course it's today what you and I still appreciate. Verse 13 says, which things we speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches. Many men have been very bright, very scholarly, and very intellectual. But did you notice Paul says, that's not what we preach. We preach what the Holy Ghost has delivered. We preach what the Spirit of God has sent forth and made known. And aren't you thankful that we have that book? One of the things that I remember, and perhaps you do as well, in school there was a time that the teacher, and I suppose every teacher did it back then, but impressed upon us what things can happen by word of mouth. And so the teacher whispered something to one student, and we were told each one whispers it to the next one. And the time you got to the very end of the class, that student Tell me what it was it was just told to you, and let's compare it to the original message that I gave the first student. It bore almost no resemblance. The message was nothing like what the teacher had told that first student. Notice what word of mouth had changed. What if you and I had to rest all the hope of heaven on simply the word of man? No matter how earnest they may be, no matter how honest they may have been, the message would have changed over time. We don't have to worry about that. You've got this book. It has stood timeless since the God of heaven has given it. Surely in light of that, may I ask that this fourth blockbuster passage has been an emphasis on the words. And may we never forget that this Word of God literally is His Word. It is not the thoughts of God in the words of men. For if that's true, this is not the Word of God. Again, if it's the thoughts of God and the words of men, this is not His Word. But rather, if this is literally the Word of God expressing His will and His thoughts, then we do have the Word of God and aren't we thankful? Blockbuster passage number 5 brings us to the closing of our lesson this morning. As we come to this last one, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 22 to 25, 
we have Peter one more time reminding us about the Word of God. But he does so in a way that is, in some sense, comforting, but in another very chilling. It says, Seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit, unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God which liveth and abideth forever. For all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is the flower of grass. The grass withereth, and the flower fadeth away. But the word of God, the word of the Lord, endureth forever. And this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. This last observation is this. Did you notice the reference to the seed? It said in verse 23, You are born again, not of incorruptible seed, or rather, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible. You and I are born into the kingdom of God. By what means, by what mechanism does that happen? He tells us the incorruptible seed is the Word of God. It lives and abides forever. It's true, isn't it, that you and I might choose to live foolishly. We might choose to live in open stubbornness or rebelliousness to the Word of God, but we shall one day pay for that choice because this book will live and abide forever. We may deny it in this life, but we'll not deny it at judgment because can you imagine the august presence of the moment when we stand before the great judge and on that throne, if you please, is open this book. Wouldn't it be sad? To face it then, knowing you didn't live by it now, it'll be hopeless. It'll be hopeless. Five blockbuster passages that talk to us about the Word of God. May I suggest to each of us then as we close the lesson today, there are a number of passages at the bottom of that slide that bring us to appreciate the living and abiding character of this Word of God. Job looked upon it more special, more important than even the physical food that he ate, Job 23.12. In conclusion to this lesson, the question comes to you and me then like this. The book is what you and I have. It's the Biblia, the Biblos. And this book, unlike any other, for this book is inspired of God. It's the Word of God. It wasn't taught to those original in individuals by men. They received it by revelation. And as you and I noticed in the opening passage, it is, of course, what makes you and I in a position to be faithful and pure. Have you obeyed it? We just read a moment ago, it's through obedience to that that the conscience is made clean and pure. If today that doesn't describe you, why not bow in humble submission to the book? It's not to me, it's not to our eldership, it's to the book. If there's one or more in this audience today who would like to render a public response to the gospel's call of invitation, realize that you're responding to an invitation from heaven. Again, it's not from me, it's not from a person here on earth, it's the Lord's invitation. And as He sends it forth, it's sent forth with all the love and mercy that was shown at Calvary. 
We'd be delighted to assist anyone today if that would be the need of your life. Maybe as an alien sinner, you have recognized the need to come forward and to be baptized into Christ. You must believe in Jesus, though, as a prerequisite to that. You must repent of your sins and you must confess His great name. But upon so doing, we'd be delighted then to assist you in being immersed into Jesus. If you have become a Christian, though, but you have begun to live carelessly, foolishly, in a way that does not bring glory and honor to God. You realize the weight of the sentence of this book was going to crush your shoulders one day. Why not make the change now so that you can live in open approval of the book and not having it to oppose you? If today we could be of assistance to anybody, we'd be delighted to pray to God for you. You need though, make, to make the decision. And won't you do that and do it at once while together we stand and while we sing?